Well, today we resume chapter 22 in our verse-by-verse series through the book of Acts. We've been at it for a while, and we are getting close to the end. I'm excited. Paul is in Jerusalem. He has finished his third missionary journey now. He's been traveling all over the Mediterranean area, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, starting all of these churches, supporting all of these churches, and he has just felt compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem even though he was warned by the Holy Spirit that he would be arrested and he would face great danger there. So Paul is in Jerusalem and then barely a week after he shows up, he has been falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish temple. And this was a violation punishable by death. So he's in some serious trouble here. A violent mob has formed and they were trying to kill him, but he was taken into the custody of a Roman commander who was trying to keep the peace. And you know, I was realizing this as I was putting my notes together. How many times now has Paul been the cause of some kind of violent mob or riot? Like next time I, I read through the book of Acts, I just want to start like a riot counter because we've got to be in the double digits at this point. Paul has caused so much chaos almost everywhere he goes. And of course, it's not his fault. He's just preaching the truth. And there are just some crazy people stirred up by the enemy that are trying to take him down. But anyway, Paul is given permission to speak to this angry mob in Jerusalem. And so he shares his testimony of how he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. But as soon as Paul mentions that he's been called to minister to the Gentiles, it was over. As soon as he said the word Gentiles, the people were done listening to him. They wanted him dead. It says here in verse 22, they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. So this brings us to where we left off. But before we start again with verse 23, I wanted to prepare us a little bit. So towards the end of the book of Acts, there's just a lot of narrative. It's a lot of historical record and Luke is very detailed. So we're just gonna be reading a lot of dialogue, a lot of story. Uh, it's gonna be feeling sort of like story time for the next several weeks until we bring this thing home and, and, and finish the book of Acts. So for the next several weeks, do your best to follow along with a lot of text. Stick with me as best you can. We're getting close to the conclusion here. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you gonna do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Let's pause there for a minute. So they're about to give Paul a serious whipping. And this is more than just a regular beating. I mean, Paul was probably used to regular beatings by now. Honestly, he's probably used to serious whippings too, but... <laughs> 
but this was a flogging. This was significantly more dangerous than a regular beating. It was not uncommon for men who were whipped with the Roman flagrum, or the flagellum as it's also called, or the scourge, the Roman scourge. It was not uncommon for men to die from their injuries after being flogged with a Roman scourge. Some would even become paralyzed. There's so much damage to the back that it damages the the spine and the, the nervous system, the spinal cord. So Romans would use the flagrum. It's my favorite thing to call it. The flagrum sounds kind of cool. They would use this flagrum to force confessions out of suspected criminals. Pretty, pretty gross, right? Pretty evil. It was a leather whip that had three strands. And on these three strands, they knotted a bunch of little pieces of metal, all kinds of different metal, sharp metal. So this thing was just nasty. And so Jesus was flogged with a Roman flagrum before his crucifixion. And he nearly died. I'm, I, like, this is devastating to the human body, this thing. The, the Romans were just masters of destroying the human body. It's really sad, pretty gross. Uh, the amount of blood loss is really dangerous just from all these lacerations, not to mention risk of infection and these dirty Roman prisons and all this stuff. But we learn that Paul was actually no stranger to being flogged. He says in 2 Corinthians, he writes that five times Paul has received the 40 lashes minus one. And uh, what that means, that actually comes from Old Testament law, 40 lashes minus one. This was something that the Jews would do to punish people in uh, Israel. So in Deuteronomy, if lashes were to be given as a, a punishment in a court by a judge, according to the law of Moses, it was forbidden to give more than 40 lashes. So 40 was the limit. If you did 41, you've broken the law of Moses. So the Sanhedrin in the first century they want to be very careful not to accidentally miscount and break the law. So they would only issue 39 lashes. They wouldn't even try to go up to the full 40. They, they would do 39 just in case they miscounted one. So Paul's received the 40 lashes minus one five times. His back must have just looked like ground beef, the poor guy. Just tons of scars. But before Paul receives another horrible flogging, he pulls his trap card, Yahtzee, Uno reverse, you know, whatever. Ha ha, not so fast. He, he asks, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen that hasn't even been found guilty? And this was a shock to the Roman centurion about to flog this dude because Roman citizens have privileged rights. Unlike foreign criminals, who basically had no rights. So according to Roman law, Roman citizens weren't even supposed to be bound with chains without due process. So here they are about to flog a Roman citizen and they are possibly in some hot water. So the centurion gets the commander who questions Paul, are you Roman? Paul says, yes. And there was also a strict penalty back then for lying about your Roman citizenship. There's some historians that write, if you lied about your Roman citizenship, it could be punishable by death. So this was a big deal. They tended to take people by their word. And the commander says something odd. So maybe he's skeptical. He says, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Uh, and this is probably referring to an expensive bribe he had to pay in order to gain Roman citizenship. Because there were really only two ways to be a Roman citizen. You had to be born into it, or you had to bribe some official to grant you Roman citizenship. So that's probably how this commander 
attained his citizenship is by paying a lot of money to somebody. And uh, Paul probably didn't look very impressive right now. (laughs) He'd just been beaten by a mob. Uh, His clothes are probably torn and bloody and dirty. So, you know, the commander looks at this guy and says, you are a citizen. You have enough money to, to bribe an official. But then Paul clarifies, he's a legit Roman citizen. He was born in Tarsus, the capital of Cilicia, which became a Roman province in 64 BC, so over 100 years before this, under the reign of Emperor Pompey. So he's a a full-blown Roman citizen, and his citizenship would prove to be a blessing for him in these upcoming trials. So let's keep reading. Verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. <laughs> yeah, Paul is, uh, he's, he's playing chess and they're playing checkers here. So, so Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin once again and the Sanhedrin, they were the Jewish ruling body. They were kind of like the Jewish Congress or parliament, and also a tribunal that made judgments. And Paul was once a voting member of the Sanhedrin. And here he is now defending himself before them. And it's not going very well. (laughs) But Paul begins by addressing the Sanhedrin with, my brothers, my brothers. He's trying to appeal to them on a personal, emotional level because he knows them. He loves them. He wants them to have Christ. He was once one of them. But apparently this is not the proper way to address the Sanhedrin. Paul was technically supposed to address them with rulers of the people and elders of Israel. That is the way you're supposed to address the Sanhedrin. And then Paul also claimed to have a clear conscience. And that must have also offended this high priest because he ordered Paul to be struck in the mouth. And then Paul pulls one out of Jesus's playbook and calls him a whitewashed wall which means he looks nice and clean and presentable on the outside, but inside is rotten and filthy and full of hypocrisy and pride and self-righteousness. And and Jesus often called out the hypocrisy of the teachers of the law. He, He had very little patience for the teachers of the law because they were so full of pride. They were so arrogant and they were so oppressive on, on the, the normal peasants of Israel. And Paul also claims that the high priest has broken the law of Moses by ordering him to be struck. And, and there's a couple things, you know, this could refer to. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in court, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. And I did a little digging. The words of the Talmud forbid striking a Jewish man. The Talmud says, One who strikes the face of an Israelite has struck the face of the Holy One. So this is not scripture. The Talmud is a collection of oral tradition 
extra laws and commentary from a bunch of rabbis that wanted to expand on the Old Testament law. As if the Old Testament law wasn't detailed enough, all of these rabbis continued to write, well, this is what this means, and so you have to do this and this and this and this. And so they just added more and more and more and more laws. And then at this point, it was still oral tradition. Eventually, it would be written and collected into what today is called the Talmud. All of these, these extra laws and things. So according to their own extra law, Paul should not have been struck. So Paul is pointing out the hypocrisy here of the high priest. And Paul didn't know or recognize Ananias, this new high priest, not to be confused with Ananias from Acts chapter nine, which is the Christian that healed Paul's blindness after Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. But historians don't have much good to say about this Ananias, the high priest. They describe him as violent and arrogant and gluttonous and greedy. He was very corrupt. The historian Josephus, he writes that Ananias would steal for himself from the tithes that were supposed to be for the temple priests, the Levites. So he was skimming off the top of, of the Lord's tithe. This man was seriously corrupt. Seriously, a, a genuine whitewashed wall. And then later, because Ananias was so friendly with the Romans, Jewish zealots would assassinate him. So, so Paul's words here about God striking Ananias may have just been a reaction in anger, but it was prophetic because God would strike Ananias. All right, verse four. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So it's understandable that Paul would not have recognized this new high priest because during this season they were replaced a lot since Caiaphas, the one who condemned Jesus. There's been a lot of different uh, high priests and, and uh, Paul's been out of the loop in Jerusalem for about 20 something years. So it's been a while. He, he, it's understandable that Paul didn't know who Ananias was. And uh, Paul also recognizes his fault. He quotes Exodus twenty two twenty eight. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And we also learn from Paul's letter to the Galatians that he had really poor eyesight. I, I just learned this actually. In Galatians 6, 11, Paul writes, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So, so you know those 55 plus playing cards with like the giant letters on them? I'm like, wow, look at those. <laughs> They're so big. And, and now I'm 34 and I'm like, uh-oh, I'm blind as a bat. I, I wanna get the 55 plus playing cards. Well, those cards are for Paul too. He was super blind. He, could, he had terrible eyesight. So even if he would have known Ananias, he probably wouldn't have recognized him because everything was probably just a blur for Paul. But let's read on. Verse six. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Hmm. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And Luke gives us a little parenthesis here. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. 
So this is very interesting what Paul is doing here and we see some of his intelligence at play. I mentioned earlier, Paul's playing chess, they're playing checkers and he sees that this conversation is not going in his favor and the high priest has already ordered him to be struck after only saying two sentences. So, you know, Paul knows these guys. He knows the Sanhedrin. He knows their weaknesses, and Paul needs a way out. He needs a distraction. He's trying to get some allies maybe, so he says, I'm a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And, you know, this isn't some kind of white lie. Like, Paul's talking about Jesus, He's talking about Jesus who was resurrected from the dead and that is the hope that we have. And if you've read Paul's letters, you know how important the resurrection of Christ is to Paul's theology. It is central to Paul's theology. If Christ isn't resurrected, then none of this matters. So it's very interesting for Paul to say that. And of course, he knows, he knows that any mention of resurrection is going to start a firestorm of debate among the Sadducees and the Pharisees in this group, the Sanhedrin. And you know, as Luke reminds us, Sadducees did not believe in any kind of resurrection, but it was very important to the Pharisees. So Paul bringing this up is, is kind of like bringing up politics at your Thanksgiving meal with your whole, you know, extended family, right? You bring up politics, Uncle Jeff just loses it. You know, your third cousin, twice removed, starts shouting, you know, down the table. Somebody's throwing forks at somebody else. You know, like, you just, you don't do that, right? You just like, let's just keep politics out of the Thanksgiving dinner table and everyone will be happy. So Paul has just said the thing and started this firestorm. So let's find out what happens next. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? <laughs> so, you know, it worked. Paul has at least made some temporary allies out of a few Pharisees. Verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. You know, I imagine that Paul was heartbroken. He wanted to reach his brothers. He cared about these whitewashed walls. He had compassion for them and it didn't work. He wasn't even allowed to really share. Things went south immediately. But his plan worked. He got the Sanhedrin so worked up on this resurrection issue that the commander pulls him out of there, takes him back into custody. You know, this Roman commander must have thought that these Jews were nuts. <laughs> like First, they riot over one word that Paul says, Gentile, of which Romans are Gentiles, right? And so now the leaders, the Sanhedrin, which are supposed to be the cool, calm-headed ones, right? They start fighting over one word, resurrection. They must have looked like lunatics to this Roman commander. But Paul has this encounter with the Lord. God speaks to him. And finally, God's purpose in all of this is made clear. 
God wanted Paul to testify first in Jerusalem, then in Rome. That is the point of all of this. That is why God has brought Paul into this thicket in Jerusalem because God wants his servant to testify about Jesus. God has a plan in all of this craziness that Paul is going through. And there is a lesson for us in that. There are times in our lives when we just don't understand what in the sweet blue blazes is going on. Has anyone ever been there before? You know, God, why is this happening? God, why could this, what could possibly be the purpose behind all of this? I'm sure we've all been there before. I know I have several times in, our, in my short 34 years already. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be human and to feel raw emotions. That's how God made us. And God can handle it, right? I mean, half of the book of Psalms is, is just spiritual venting. Is what It's just, God, where are you? And you've forsaken me. And you know, it's a very emotional book. And we need to do that sometimes, right? But the Psalms always brings it back around to God's faithfulness, God's sovereignty, his might, his power. God always has a plan. And we may not like his plan. <laughs> we may not understand his plan. I mean, sometimes God tests our faith. Sometimes God wants to remove an idol in our lives. That's painful. And then sometimes horrible things just happen in this world because the curse of sin has broken so much. But God is working to restore. God wants us to be close to him in everything. So we may not always understand God's ways. His ways are higher than our ways, but we must always choose to trust in God. Scripture tells us that we should cast our cares and our anxieties on the Lord, that we should make our requests known to God through prayer and petitions with thanksgiving. I just read that verse recently. I'm like, oh, why'd they have to put those two words in there? Like, yeah, sure, I'll make my requests known with prayers and petitions. With thanksgiving, oh, that is hard sometimes. It is hard for us in the midst of pain and worry and struggle to say, thank you, God, for blessing me with what I have. Thank you, God, for providing in this way and this way and this way. The reason Paul included that is because we need it. We, our souls need to be thankful because it centers us and who God is. It reminds us, yes, Lord, you have come through for me before. And I trust that you will come through for me again. We need to bring it all before the Lord and be thankful for the ways that God has blessed us, even in the midst of struggle. So God has revealed his purpose to Paul. He wants him to testify in Jerusalem and Rome. And I was realizing as I was reading this chapter it's just amazing to me that, that God gives the wicked many chances to repent. There's an, there's an example of that in Acts, absolutely. How many times has God sent a messenger to the Jewish people? God sent Jesus. He was rejected and killed. Stephen, the first martyr, he spoke the truth to the Sanhedrin. He was stoned to death. Peter and John were arrested multiple times. He, they spoke the truth to the Sanhedrin. They were rejected. 
How many opportunities has God given these Jewish leaders to repent? So many opportunities. And here is Paul again, speaking truth. Our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of second chances. And his desire is that all should be saved. That is God's ultimate will. And yet God is also the perfect judge. He knows exactly how much grace is sufficient for us. Let me read on, verse 12. One more passage for today and we'll wrap it up. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, wow, these people really want Paul dead. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So store that one in the memory banks. Next week, we'll see. Are are we gonna see 40 guys just drop dead? Are they gonna get to Paul? I mean, this sounds like a huge gamble to me. Most adults can only go three or four days without water, and here they are taking an oath not to drink until they kill Paul. They could die of dehydration. So these 40 men better not mess this up or uh, the, the coroner in Jerusalem is gonna be very busy in several days. You know, and some scholars believe these 40 men were a part of this Sicari, and we talked about that last week. Sicari were a group of Jewish assassins. Sicari is Latin for dagger men. The, the Sika was a curved blade used in the Roman Empire. And so a lot of these assassins would use Sika. They were called Sicari. Very interesting. But God's favor was with Paul. Paul's nephew heard about this plot and warned Paul, which is amazing. So we're gonna stop there this week. We'll have to find out what happens next week. (laughs) But I think another lesson for us from this reading today, God is in control. God has a plan. He always has a plan. God is not some absent-minded slacker. God's not up there just playing it by ear, like, oh, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, I guess I'll help you or bless you. No, God is the alpha and the omega. He is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly just. God knows our every thought. He knows every word we speak before it's on our tongue. God created the entire universe. He holds it in his hands. That is the God we serve. And his way is perfect. He is with you. He is for you. So bring your prayers and petitions to him. Cast your cares on him. And we do that every Sunday, right? When we share our our prayer requests and praises, we pray together. I hope all of us can choose to trust in God today and every day. 
So let me pray for us. We're gonna do something a little different. Let's all stand for prayer and a benediction. I like to end the service with a benediction lately. And if you'd like to, to hold your hands out to receive the benediction, you are welcome to do that. God, thank you so much for your word and, and the story of Paul, the incredible miracles and the way that you have been present with him even in the hard times and that you reveal your plan, that your favor is with him. And God, we ask for that same favor. We ask for your Holy Spirit to fill each one of us. Bless us, Lord, strengthen us, go with us, speak to us. Let your voice be clear to us, God. Help us to be bold in our prayers. And today's benediction is from Romans chapter 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I love you guys. Have a great Sunday. Go in peace. I'll see you next week.